Good morning, everyone. You may be seated. Today's the last week in our series, Life is Stressing Me Out, as we talk about emotions. And so we're talking about cultivating godly emotions. Before we jump into that, I just want to give you some background to this. So my favorite flower is the plumeria. It grew everywhere on the islands I come from. The scent of it reminds me of home. It is without doubt the most common flower used to make lays in the islands of Hawaii. I love everything about it. So when Lori and I landscaped our backyard about this past year, I had five plumeria trees planted on the top of the hill. Now, this isn't the first time that I have tried to have plumerias around our house here in Mission Viejo. And when we lived in La Habra, I would try and get stocks from friends and and grow plumeria trees, Uh, but it never quite took. Uh, you know, I put them in the bucket, and, and then they just never became plumeria trees. So um, I was determined this time to have plumeria trees and to have plumeria flowers, and I think we're going to be successful. And that's because this time, as opposed to the last time, last times, I'm, I'm actually trying to cultivate the flower, right? So what I mean by that is every other week I will be up on the top of the hill, and I'm pulling out weeds, and, and I'm taking out the dead leaves from my neighbor's trees. I'm removing bugs and other invasious uh, insects from damaging the plant. But I'm also... Uh, tilling the soil. Every other week, I'm going up there with new nutrient-rich soil, putting it in there. I'm watering it, making sure they have light. I'm even putting uh, mists of water on the leaves and the buds so that everything is going to work out fine. So I, I'm really excited that really soon, we're going to actually have plumeria trees of our own. It's been a few months, but I think in a couple more months, it's going to happen. Now, I think what's true of my plumeria trees is the same thing that's true of people's Christian lives in general, and particularly when it comes to their emotional lives. And that is, they do kind of what I did with my plumeria stocks. We throw it in a bucket, kind of walk away, and hope for the best. And we get a little bit surprised when things don't turn out the way we want them to. You know, Scripture actually compares our lives to my plumeria trees. Actually, it compares our lives to a garden. Proverbs chapter 24, starting in verse 30, says this, I pass by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns, and the ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The point is, discipline and diligence is necessary to cultivate a beautiful vineyard or garden or a plumeria plant, as the case might be. Growth is not simply getting rid of the weeds, right? As important as that is, and if you catch in the metaphor in the Christian life, it's not simply just not sinning, although that's an important fact. We see that in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. It's a very powerful verse. Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So weeding, taking out the weeds, all those things, that is necessary. That's really important. But if I'm going to run with the metaphor here, it's not just weeding. We also need to be involved in watering, right? There's weeding, so I guess the the metaphor I'm going is weeding and watering. Both of those are really important. And that theme, by the way, runs all the way through the Scriptures. Not exactly in those words, but this both-and concept to Christian growth is everywhere. So, for example, Paul says in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, the putting off of the old man, putting on of the new man. 
Jesus talks about in Matthew 16 and Mark 8, putting down our lives, picking up his cross, right? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, turning from your idols, turning to the living God. And finally, in 1 Timothy, there's this flee from ungodliness and impurity and follow after holiness and righteousness. This kind of weeding and watering, both and, not either or. This is what's called in the Puritans. I just read, uh, wrote an article about, the Pur- about Richard Baxter, my favorite Puritan. And, and so the, that language is on my mind. The Puritans had a concept for this. They called it mortification. It's a big word, right? Mortification. It means to subdue or to destroy. And they would say the mortification of sin, destroying your sin. I, th- I think one Puritan I quoted said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you, right? So they had this concept of mortification. But it wasn't just get rid of sin. They had another amazing word that we no longer use. I want to see if I can bring it back into our vocabulary. It's called vivification, right? It is the opposite. It was bringing to life, animating something. And the Puritans understood you have to mortify your sin, but you need to vivify godliness, Well, the same is true of our emotional lives. It's not just one or the other. The same is true of our Christian lives. It's not just stopping certain behaviors or just starting others. It's a both and. You see, friends, our emotions are no longer, because of sin, our emotions are no longer naturally inclined such that they they, they cooperate in us loving, honoring, or obeying God. They don't work that way anymore. When God created everything, we looked at Genesis 1 last week, when, when creation was there, everything was working fine. There was no concept that we call mental illness because our reason, our emotion, our volition, all of these were integrated and working in harmony. But because of sin, instead, now, our emotions... Uh, Our emotions are self-serving. Our affections are idolatrous. And our passions are for our own glory, not for God's. And so this is really important to to recognize. We need to get these in alignment. And so becoming and growing as a Christian will not necessarily make you more emotional. No. Rather, I hope it renews and, and kindles and redirects your affections So much so that it's easier for the new man to love God and love others more wholeheartedly and to hate evil and sin. So in this series, the goal is not to make you emotional for its own sake. Not at all. But one of the things I was hoping is that if you are more aware and awake to your emotions and every one of us has them, and you get more in touch with what's going on, if you can connect to that powerful aspect of what it means to be a person, you have a lot to give other people. Stop and think about that. If you can figure out your own emotional states and understand and appreciate the power of those emotions, you actually have something to give away. Whether it's your kids that you're working with, however old they might be, your spouse, your family, your friends, because every one of us are emotional beings. Here's the reality and why that's so important. Our emotional states reveal our souls. Our emotional states, they are windows into our souls. They reveal the allegiances of our hearts. And in our counseling classes, I always teach that everyone everywhere is always revealing themselves. You just need to know how to hear the language. And we've talked a little bit about how emotions have their own language. The presence or absence of emotional states 
reveals things in you that's going on in your heart. Think about that. The fact that you have emotional states or aren't having emotional states, both of those reveal things about you in given situations and circumstances. Let me give you an illustration. My first year I came pastor here was 2015. We had some situations going on in our preschool. It was in a much different place than it is now. There was some grumbling amongst the staff and some of these teachers. And I, being the new pastor, I just had to try to figure something out who some of these uh, not very happy employees were. And so the way I did it without just asking to, for people to get gossipy or anything is I brought in a box of donuts to every class. And I walked into every classroom and offered the teacher some donuts. And I figured out real easily who the two discontented employees were because when I walked in every class, every teacher did this. <gasps> donuts! And two did this. What are you doing in my class? And it was very clear by their emotional states. Remember, what is emotional health? The right emotion at the right time, right? It was very clear. Oh, something's not going on here because who doesn't love donuts and you're not happy to see me? I'll see you later. Point is, now I'm not being manipulative. I'm just applying biblical truth. Our emotional states reveal us all the time. We can't get away from that. So if you can be alive to that reality of you, you have something to give away to people, right? So remember, we talked about what is emotional health? The right emotion at the right time felt in the right intensity, expressed in the right way. That's our definition of emotional health. We said the key to that emotional health, universally the key to that health was love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. The closer you're in alignment with that, the better your emotional health will be. The further you're away from that, the further your emotional health is going to be. So then here's the question. What then is the key to that? How do I get to the place where I love the things God loves and hate the things God hates? And here's the answer to that one. You'd be like Jesus. Oh, forget about it then, right? If, if I have to be like Jesus, who is perfect to get emotional health, I'm in a problem. I'm in a pickle here. No, you're not. I know it sounds impossible, and it should, because we're talking about Jesus. But you know, that was God's plan and design for all of us to begin with. So let me remind you of a passage we looked at last week, Genesis chapter 1, going right in the beginning of the book. Then God said, let us make man in what? Our image. After our likeness. So God created man in what? In his own image. And he says it a third time in case we didn't pick it up. In the image of God, he created him. So humanity was made in God's image. Of course, if you know the narrative, we turned our back on that. Genesis 3, the introduction of sin. We have destroyed that. Notice what Paul says really tellingly about Jesus in 2 Corinthians 4.4. He says, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, and then he defines who Christ is. Who is what? The image of God. Now, you should be reading your Bible going, wait, wait a minute here. Genesis 1 says, I'm in, I was made in the image. You are the image of God. But 2 Corinthians 4 is saying, Jesus is the image of God. What's going on here? Biblical theology, Jesus, also called the last Adam, he is the perfect picture of humanity. He's doing what we should have done but didn't. He's taking our place and saying, you want to know what humanity is supposed to be? That's me, made in the image of God, just like all of us. And so I'm not saying be like Jesus in his personality and those kind of temperament, that kind of thing. 
the beauty of God's design is that we're all so diverse in our personalities and, and our idiosyncrasies and our quirks and our humors and all that. What we're saying here, what the scripture's saying is be conformed to the character of Christ. And you should know by now, personality and character are two different things, right? Little dating tip, people are drawn by personality, but you marry character. So make sure you get those things lining up, right? So what's the key to emotional health? Love God, love what God loves, hate what God hates. What's the, how do we get there? Be conformed to Jesus Christ. You say, no, that's, not, that's impossible. We can't do that. Well, actually, it's not because that was God's intention all along. So this morning, and again, this is, this is kind of a flyover. I'm hoping this whets your appetite more thinking about this. We put some books in the book spot on emotions and feelings that are grounded biblically that can be helpful, but I hope your appetites are whetted. This is what we're talking about, conformity to Christ. That is the key to so much things. And then we're going to talk about two very practical, just so how do we cultivate, how do we practically cultivate a conformity to Christ in our emotions, we'll talk a little bit about that, and then I want to end with eight important questions for you to ask yourself constantly. So that's where we're going this morning. Conformity to Christ, cultivating emotional health, and eight questions to ask yourself. God's goal has always been for us to be conformed to the image of His Son, because when we are conformed to Christ our reason, our affections, our will become integrated again. Conformity to Christ was God's plan for all time. You see this, it was God's plan in our predestination. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Paul writes this. For those he foreknew, he also predestined. Why were we predestined? To be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What's going on in Romans 8? Paul is talking about the recreation of all things, the consummation of all reality, and its focus being in Christ and humanity again, becoming the image bearers we were always intended to be, Jesus being the firstborn example of that. What Paul is saying is that God's plan in our predestination was always to be like his son. So conformity to Christ was the goal of predestination. But conformity to Christ is also the goal in our sanctification. We're not just waiting for that final day of consummation. That conformity, although imperfect, is happening now. This is what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face... And that, that's an allusion to the Old Testament of Moses coming down from the Mount Sinai with a glowing face. He had to cover himself. But now in Christ, that, that veil's been taken off. We're beholding the glory of the Lord. Are being transformed into what? The same image, right? From one degree of glory to another. So it's incremental. So our conformity to Christ, we're not just waiting to that day at the end of all things and we'll be like Christ in our character no, it's happening now in our sanctification. So our conformity to Christ was God's goal in predestination. Our conformity is God's goal in our sanctification. And our conformity to Christ is just God's goal for the Christian life. This is what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is one of those kind of orienting scriptures you should just have memorized. This is a summary statement of the Christian life. Notice what Paul is saying. I have it highlighted in red. It is not so much you living for Christ as much as it is Christ living his life through you. That is so important, friends. 
This is where I think, as much as I kind of like that, remember that the days we used to wear the WWJD bracelets, what would Jesus do? I, I like it, but well intended, but sometimes that can lead to moralism because the issue isn't how we're just behaving, but it's the entirety, my heart, soul, mind, and affections to be Christ's. And when we studied the book of Galatians, I made it very clear, and this, you need to hear this, if you are trying to live the life of Christ without the life of Christ, that's impossible. And if you are frustrated with your life, your Christian life, you just kind of find yourself being angry all the time or not seeing the kind of fruit you want to see, maybe you're trying to live the life of Christ without the life of Christ in you. Because the life of Christ without the life of Christ is impossible. And that's why people get involved in religion, because now they do the performance, because they don't have new life inside of them. It'd be me, like me, stapling plumerias onto the tree and saying, great, I got a plumeria tree. That is not what it is. There needs to be new life in the root structure that's coming out, bearing fruit in these beautiful flowers. Conformity to Christ, that's the goal, because then Christ, when we are conformed to Christ, the harmonious interaction of our reason, our will, and our affections are brought together again. That was disintegrated in the fall. And friends, whenever we make, whenever we kind of pit our emotions and our intellect and our volition against each other, and sometimes we do that, right? How many times have you heard people say, well, brother, that's, that's heart, head knowledge. What you need is heart knowledge, right? You've said that probably. That's not biblical. Because our heads and our hearts, we're all messed up. So it's not like your head is better than your heart or your heart's better than your head. They all need to be subjected to Christ's lordship and all of them working together. He gave it to us for a reason. And whenever we're just focusing on one to the neglect of the others, we're, we're going to be in a bad shape. Because a biblical view of humanity is we are an integrated whole. My intellect, my emotions, my, my will functioning together. That doesn't mean there's tensions but they function together, and in Christ, they come together beautifully. Let me just give you a quick biblical theology of this. In Christ, we find that we have wisdom, knowledge, and truth, so that we know the good of reason is restored to us. Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says this, in whom, in speaking of Christ, are hidden all the treasures of what? Wisdom and knowledge. A few verses later in Colossians 3.10, Paul says, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Ephesians 4.21, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. So in Christ, the good of our reason is restored. In Christ, the good, in Christ, we are empowered to make good choices. So our volition is renewed. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus 3.8, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The point isn't works. What Paul is getting at, what these passages are getting at, is the Holy Spirit enables and empowers you so that you can make the choices that are consonant with what God's will is, and those are good works. 
our volitions restored. So our, our intellect is restored in Christ, our, our wills are restored in Christ, and finally, in Christ, our emotions and our affections are redeemed and they become allies with God to love Him and others better. Let me just read a couple, two texts from this scripture. Philippians 1, 7, Paul writes this, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how I yearn for all of you with the affections of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2.8, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you've become dear to us. Right? This is Paul, effusive with his emotions. And you say, well, that's Paul, that's not me. Yeah, but Paul says, imitate him as he imitates Christ, so it's consistent. In Christ, our intellect our volitions and our emotions become integrated all for God's glory and purposes. So emotional health and the key to emotional health, that's how this works. So let's talk practically now. Then practically, what are some steps that we can do to cultivate this kind of emotional health? So let's talk about that next. Now, I want to be clear on something here. What I'm saying here, what I'm sharing with you now, does not directly cause the growth there are other ways you can do this because what I'm talking about is cultivating the environment, right? Just as I'm up on that hill weeding and watering and, and, and putting, making the sun there, the things I'm doing doesn't cause the growth, right? All what I'm doing is creating an environment. So like the nutrients at the molecular level and all the good things in the soil, they can come together and do that amazing thing of growing it. All I'm doing is creating an environment to allow that stuff to happen, right? So there are other ways to do it, but I want to talk about some key ways here. I just, I just want to make sure I'm not confusing you by saying this is the only way the growth can happen, but it is powerfully and fundamental. Where, where am I looking here? Yes. So let's talk about the weeding part first, to use my metaphor, and then we'll talk about the watering part, talking about the putting off of the old man before we talk about the putting on of the new man. Step one, understand yourself. So we're talking about mortification, right? Uh, getting rid of these kind of ungodly emotions. The first step is this, understand yourself and your emotional makeup. I'll give you some ideas on how you can do that. Um, in my first week, I think I talked about personality tests and I kind of poo-pooed them, right? Um, I'm not against them. They actually can be helpful. If you have no clue, like, like, my wife always says, I'm totally physically disconnected to my physical body. Like, I get injuries and sickness, and I have no idea. But I like to think internally I'm pretty dialed in, right? Not everyone's that way. So I think personality tests can be helpful, right? But you have to be really careful here because personality tests, they're just descriptive. They're not destiny, right? People take these personality tests, and they're like, well, I'm not going to serve in kids' ministry because I'm an INFJ, and we're introverts, and kids need a lot of energy. No, that's foolishness. You might be more introverted, but that's not your destiny, right? That's just your personality. Now you know things you need to work on. Now, some of you may be against the whole concept of personality testing. You go, well, I don't, I, I'm not going to do that. That's fine. Then the way you find out understanding yourself is to be aware of your emotional makeup. And let me say it this way. Every emotional state, as we've seen in this series, has counterparts, don't they? 
good and bad. Like, you could say, well, I'm just a passionate guy. Now, if you're a passionate man or woman, that's good. But that also probably means the counter of that is you can be a jerk. That, that energy can go in the other direction. Now, some of you out there, you're not passionate that way. Maybe you're pensive and thoughtful and cool. That's good. But the flip side of that is you can probably be too cool and aloof and uncaring. You see how that works. So now if you're sitting there going, well, I, you know, I, I don't know any of my bad emotions, just write all the ways you think you're great and then hand that list to your spouse and they can t- tell you the opposite, right? I'm just kidding. But it's all seriousness. If you're having a hard time saying, well, what are my sinful emotions that I need to mortify and you really don't know, write down on a piece of paper all those personality aspects of you that are commendable and good. And just think about how that can go sideways. Like, if you like to say, hey, I'm just a free spirit, that's good. But that can also be code for, I'm actually pretty lazy and don't want to discipline myself to plan anything. Right? You see how that works, right? So all you do is, hey, i got to understand myself. I have a hard time knowing where my sinful emotions might pop up. Just write down the areas you think you're really great at and just try to look at the opposite. And there's a good chance you're going to find out how my emotions become sinful. Now, when this happens, this is, when this happens, there are two self-defense mechanisms you need to be aware of. And it's not a matter of if. Everyone in this room does it. It's just a matter of degree. We all do this. Self-defense mechanism one. Denial. To say that you are not that bad or the situation, situation is really not a problem, right? That's just straight out, I don't have problems. You have problems, I don't kind of thing. Denial. Okay? The second one is being dismissive. You might admit that there are problems you have, but you dismiss the impact, and therefore you don't need to work on it. Okay? Those are two self-defense mechanisms every one of us has. So step one to mortifying our sinful emotions, we have to be somewhat honest. What are those emotions? Those aspects of me that just may be good, but go off the rails bad. And then don't deny it and don't dismiss it. Get it on the table. Step two. Obviously, confession and repentance and biblical accountability. Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. That is so rich. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes him will obtain mercy. You need to hear that. Mercy. Right? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful, and I love this, and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's confession to God. James in chapter 5, verse 16 says, confess to one another. Confess to one another and pray for one another. Let me ask you this, practically speaking, if you're a Christian, when was the last time you confessed sin to somebody else? When was the last time you actually confessed your sin to somebody else? Brother and sister, that's a good thing to do, right? To confess your sins. Because, and so confessing and repenting, that's very important because recognizing sinful emotions, just simply recognizing them is not enough. This happens in counseling all the time. I didn't realize I was such a jerk. 
I didn't realize I've been disrespecting my husband all these years. Thanks so much. I think we're done. No. We just now started the work of good counseling. You now realize that you're wrong and I'm right. Now we can get counseling going forward, right? That's a little bit funny, but it's true. Friends, insight is not change. Okay? You realizing you're harsh with your words or you realizing you're a gossip is not repentance. That's just truth. You just now realized, oh, I'm a gossip or I'm harsh. Insight is not change. Change is change. And so the process works is you've got to understand, okay, what, what, how, do, how am I sinful in my emotions? And then I have to own them and repent of them. And that's step number three, understand the biblical process of change. Now, we don't have time to go through this in great detail, here, detail, but we do unpack every step and phase of this in our counseling classes. The biblical process of change, very similar steps one and two. Consider, confess, commit, and change. What that means is consider what I'm doing. And with the humility of recognition, what the scripture teaches is I often don't see what I'm doing. Right? Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Consider, confess, this is sin. It needs to be repented of. Commit to a new way of living and make a plan for change. That, that's the biblical process of change. If you want to really dive into that, Sign up for our counseling classes where we can unpack that. But these are just the broad steps of how do we mortify the ungodly sins. So this is pulling the weeds, right? Clearing the land, getting the dead leaves and bugs and weeds off of that. But you still won't have plumerias, right? You'll just have a nice, clean plot of dirt. Now comes the, the watering part. The soil, the nutrients, the light, you need all those things. The things what the, what the Puritans called vivification. And so that's what we're going to talk about now. The first step is the foundation and priority of truth. Going back to our very first week on this, if emotions, and they are, are cognitive, in other words, your emotions and affections are rooted and based upon beliefs and values, that is the case. It stands to reason that if your beliefs and values are a mess, so will be your emotional life. If your beliefs are nothing more than bits of what your wants and preferences, and they're not grounded in evidence and reason and logic, and, and, and they're solid, you're going to have a problem. If your values are incongruent, they don't make sense amongst themselves, you're going to have a problem. You ever meet people who are an emotional mess? There's a good chance their beliefs and value systems themselves are all out of whack. It's like building a beautiful house on a foundation of chicken wire. It's just not going to hold up. So the first step to kind of good, healthy, emotional life is the life of the mind. Friends, this is why historically Christianity has emphasized and put a huge value on the life of the mind, truth matters. That's not just a new political slogan. That's been the Christian banner through the ages. Truth matters. What are you doing to feed your mind? It's like, it's like physical exercise. What you might have done last year, if you want to get stronger, is not good enough for what you're doing this year. You've got to add some weight. You've got to do something. I uh, forget, two weeks ago I was in the bathroom here and a young man who got one of our books on the Holy Spirit. Say, hey man, I've been reading through that book. I love it. 
But it is so hard. I, it, it takes forever to read through some of these pages because it's his, his words. It's dense. And he says, but this is so good. I'm feeling like cobwebs kind of shifting out and gears starting to grind again. That is good. That is good. Friends, faith only grows in proportion to the knowledge of God that you have. If you want to start creating a, a healthy, robust, emotional life right here, it starts with having a healthy, robust view of the world. Read books. Say, I don't have time. I have empirical evidence that says you're lying. Here it is. I did some research this week. The average nonfiction, nonfiction, so not like, not, not, not like make pretend, real book, right? Nonfiction book on the New York Times bestselling list was 273 pages, okay? That's the average length of the, the uh, average uh, New, York, New York Times bestselling book. The average American can read 40 pages an hour. So that means the average American can read the average book in seven hours. Now, if you're slow and you have a hard time reading and understanding, I get it. Let's give you three more hours. So let's say it takes you 10 hours to read at one book, the average book. In any given month, you have 744 hours. That means if you just give 1.3% of your time, you could read 12 books a year. You have time, friends. The problem is we don't steward our time well. Because you know what Netflix tells me? Here's what Netflix tells me. The average Netflix subscriber, that's a lot of you. I was too, but I canceled it because I'm holy. No. <laughs> I canceled it because it's too many. The average Netflix subscriber watches 99.2 hours of video a month. That's a little over three hours a day. We have time to feed our minds. We just give it to other things. If you want a healthy emotional life, start with the foundation and priority of truth in your life. Second thing, something I call reorienting experiences. And these are experiences that allow truth to settle into you and translate from your knowledge into conviction and values, okay? And I want to recommend three things that, that I do that, that, that are helpful and that are, that are things you probably wouldn't think about when, when it comes to this, but they're very important. And number one, I don't have slides for this, so number one, sing. Sing. Ours is a singing faith. I don't sing well, so I'm not, I'm not pitching for my strong point here. It's just that we are people of the book, and the people of the book sing. If you go any place in the world where there are Christians, they sing. God has hardwired us to embrace truth with our minds, but he's also hardwired us to embrace truth with our emotions, and nothing moves our affections like music. Have you ever noticed no animal gets the beat when they hear it? Only humans start going, oh, there's music. We were designed to be moved. Sing, and we're talking about good, robust, theological songs because they pour into you. Friends, why do you think, besides the preaching of the word, the thing we give most time to in our corporate gatherings is music? Sing. Give it everything you have. 
I remember being in, I was an usher at a church years ago, and there were people sitting in the parking lot. I said, hey, the service has started. I said, no, not really. I'll just wait till the, the preaching begins. Because they didn't like the music or for whatever reason. They didn't think that was essential to their souls. But it is. If you get distracted by people, which I do as well, sit in the front, right? If, if you look at the way people dress or whatever, and that, sit in the front right here. If you're feeling a bit insecure or you feel maybe embarrassed, okay, sit in the back. The point is, sing. Scripture talks about raising our hands. The Psalms are littered with raising our hands because this is a sign, a symbol. It's, it's, it's something good about it, of release, of surrender to God, of, hey, do you see me? I need help, right? It's, do that. It doesn't have to be like the, the NFL goalpost raising of your hands like this, right? You could just do like maybe just the dive or you could even just like I'm carrying a kid or wood or raising my hand in class, whatever it might be. Get your body involved in worship. Because it's good for your soul. And don't mumble it out. Belt it out. doesn't matter if you sing poorly. My wife tells me all the time, you sound so bad. Just two weeks ago, you did. I was sitting right there. You're like, yeah, that sounds bad. Or, or I didn't get the words right or something. The point is, be a part of it. Because your soul needs that, friends. Sing. Second, go outside. Be reminded that you live life larger than what's on your screen or the four walls of your house or your office. Be reminded of the bigness of the world and your smallness. Psalm 19 says the creation declares the creator. Be really radical. Leave your AirPods at home. Leave your headsets at home. Just walk. Go for a hike or walk around the block. It doesn't have to be a big thing. Go outside. And now, uh, we, we have a lot of outdoor enthusiasts at this church, so that's good. Let, let me speak to you guys briefly. There, you might say, oh, I got that one checked. There's, there's actually a difference between just enjoying outdoor activities and receiving pleasure from that and then what I'm talking about here. You see, when we go out and enjoy outdoor activities, whatever it might be, mountain hiking or uh, surfing or whatever, we are enjoying nature for our pleasure. What I'm actually talking about is enjoying nature for God's pleasure. I'm not talking about getting it for ourselves as much as it reorients us to Him, right? So I just want to make that distinction because you may think, because I'm an outdoor enthusiast, I got this. But in some ways, you might be just using nature rather than let, letting nature point you to your Creator, right? So there's a distinction there. Go outside. And you can sing outside too, right? You can combine both of those. Like the hills are alive with the sound of music or something there. Okay, number three, and this one's challenging. Here it is. So sing, go outside. Number three, be quiet. Feel the moment. Don't rush past. We live in a frenzied world, and if you just learn to just, the Bible talks about meditation, Right? This exercise will help you follow the thread. I'll talk about that in a little bit, but I've been saying that a lot in this series. Follow the thread into your heart. You can only do that with quietness. Learn to sit in stillness. Meditate. Okay, I've got to skip this one thing. I'm going to jump to eight questions to ask yourself because we're running late. So here's really important. Eight questions to ask yourself because you might be thinking, okay, I'm on, I'm on board. Uh, I, I want to change my emotions. That's that's That's... True but not helpful, what you want to start is, I want to think about why I got so mad last night. 
I want to I give some thought as to why this person or this situation gets me so anxious. I want to start there, and some here are practical questions. The first four kind of going in, following the thread, and the last four are kind of then going back out. The first question is simple, very simple. What is your situation? What is going on? I lost my temper at my kids for the umpteenth time. I get really, my heart starts to beat fast when I have this interaction with my, my boss. You know, whatever it might be, what is the situation? Second question, what is my, your response, right? That, that, that can go in very hand in hand. This third question is really important. What was I wanting? What was I craving? What was I demanding? What was I saying I need? This is real. That's where the pay dirt happens. What's the situation? How did I respond to it? And in that moment, what was it that I was wanting from that relationship, that interaction, from, from, from whatever was going on? What was I craving, demanding, thinking I was needing that I wasn't getting? And then what was the consequence, right? So, what was the co so question two and question four are kind of related in that. What was my response and what was the consequence of that? Because guess what happens? That creates the consequence, creates a feedback loop that then sets up the next situation, doesn't it? And in some ways, if, if you're not responding correctly, this you call a cycle of foolishness because it's just going to go, go on inevitably. The situation happens. I'm wanting something idolatrous. I lash out because I'm not getting it or I want to get it and, and it. and it just crushes people. That's the next situation. And it just kind of ad infinitum goes that way. So these questions help trace it back in. And these will be in your community group questions so you can get a copy from there on Realm. Here's the next set. So that's going inward. Here's the last kind of coming back out. What does God reveal? Or what, is, what, is, what about God matters? What I mean by that is, what does God reveal in his word that's relevant to that situation? What does scripture teach? What do I know about the character of God that matters in that moment? Proverbs 29 says, the fear of man causes a snare. Yeah, when I, went into that, when I go into these interactions, part of the reason I get these palpitations and I get sweaty and I want to avoid them is because that matters way more than God matters to me. How these people think of me matters to me way more than what God thinks of me, and I'm now ensnared by that, right? So, so what does God say about this? Secondly, what beliefs, what desires should rule me? And I've often said, especially when it comes to anxiety, you are either going to fear people or you're going to love them, but you won't do both. You will either fear people or you will love them, but you will not do both. And you got to choose, okay, then how do I love people? Uh, the reason I'm fearing them, I'm so concerned about what they think about me, it's all about me again. I need to love them. How do I love them? And it's not about me. And that begins to sh change it. And what should I do in that situation? Right? That's, that's question seven. And then again, like the last kind of, the, the cycle of foolishness, this is a cycle of wisdom. What then are the consequences? of now how I'm handling that situation. And just like the, first, like the fourth question, this is a feedback loop that sets up the next situation. One is just in the vortex of foolishness, and one is a, a, a beautiful cycle of wisdom. And these eight questions, now granted, you, just get, you won't have these there instantly, but these don't just apply to our emotional lives, this applies to your Christian life in general. Going in, and you can only go in if you've got kind of the quietness to do that. And, and you can only work through some of this if your mind is, if, you, if truth is filling your mind. And then you go back out. 
And that's how we change. Friends, cultivating godly emotions, it takes time. Just like weeding out ungodly emotions takes an equal amount of time. It's not enough just to do one or the other. We've got to be doing both constantly, turning from sin, turning to Christ, denying the flesh, feeding the spirit, turning from idols to the living God, fleeing impurity, pursuing righteousness. It's something we do all the time. And the moment you stop one, you're going to stop the other two in some ways. But as we take part in, in what the Puritans called this mortification and vivification process, we are being conformed to the image of Christ. And as you are being conformed to the image of Christ, you more easily love what God loves, and you more easily hate the things God hates. And that means you, by definition, are coming into better emotional health. That's how this works. And the great thing is we're doing it in community, where none of us have arrived. We're all there helping each other out. We're going to make mistakes, but that's why there's grace. We know what the Scripture teaches. Now let's do it together. Don't apologize because you had an emotion. Emotions are nothing to be apologetic about. It's part of what life is like in a fallen world. Don't apologize because you're effusive and want to raise your hands to celebrate that. That's okay because God designed us that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We need more of it, so we ask it from you. And we know what James tells us. You love to give wisdom, that there is more grace. And so we ask you continue to give us grace, that we might be a theologically sharp congregation and an emotionally healthy body of believers. This world needs both. And we pray that you would use us for your glory and our good. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.